It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, here's your host, Matt Fitzgerald. Thus far in Preachers on Preaching, I've discovered that the preachers I'm speaking with tend to fall into one or two categories in terms of preparation. We have manuscript preachers, those who are tied right to the word on the page, and then there are extemporaneous preachers. Of course, most of us fall sort of in the middle, I think, feeling free to preach off of our manuscript when the spirit moves, but also having some notes there to rely upon. T found a third way, and it's a really fascinating story how he got there and what his method is. We also talk about the grind of preaching as a sole preacher week in, week out, more than 40 Sundays a year. That's a life I know well, having done it for 10 years. T is in the thick of it right now, and we talk about how to turn the weariness that creeps in into a sort of thanksgiving. Certainly, Preachers on Preaching has been neither disappointing nor painful for me. It's been a real joy to speak to all these good preachers. Please keep the suggestions coming, and thank you so much for listening. You can suggest an interview subject to me via the Christian Century website, christiancentury.org, or by emailing me at preachers at christiancentury.org. For now, here's my conversation with Reverend T. Gatewood. So, you're a rural preacher. Can you tell me about where your church is located and who's there? I can. So I'm the pastor at Arbordale Presbyterian Church, which is on Hickory Nut Gap Road in Banner Elk, North Carolina, which, as all of those names suggest, uh, is in the middle of the woods in the mountains of western North Carolina. Uh, we are literally a little white church on the side of a mountain uh, in a place with, with two ski resorts, uh, that has five major golf resorts and thousands of second homes. So it's a rural church uh, with the backbone of people who've grown up in this place. But it's also a congregation that welcomes you know, all those populations uh, into its life of worship. So it's a, it's a rural church, but it's an unusual congregation. So you've got a mix in your congregation of folks who are kind of the backbone of the service economy for a, for a resort area, and then also the vacationers? Is that, you got it. Is that, that right? That's precisely it. I mean, a lot of people who grew up here um, in our congregation at least have um, Christmas tree farms, um, you know, or they work seasonal jobs, um, you know, in restaurants, they work in these resorts, uh, or they have businesses that thrive when, when they're a tourist and survive when there aren't. What's that blend like in the congregation? Well, I, I find it really beautiful. Um, you know, a few years ago, I've told this story lots. I had one of the richest men in the world sharing a hymnal with a guy who grew up a hundred yards from the church who dropped out of school in the eighth grade who was a cook his whole life and I think was like the 10th of 11 kids you know and it's just not many places oh my goodness you know in a in a place like this you know the church is one of the few places where those people come together as equals does it 
wax and wane attendance over the course of the year? Are there times when the resort area and people's second homes are they're there, like in the summertime or at Christmas, or is yeah, it so, so um, people two dropping weeks in and ago, out on the weekend? Yeah, two weeks ago we had 145 people in worship. Yesterday we had maybe 75. Um, well, a friend of ours, you know, calls it the Lexus Exodus. So that first freeze comes and just the attendance just drastically drops off. So it's a so challenge, as you can how does that imagine, how, how, you know, in the giving of the church, in the life of the church, in the culture of, you know, we have to have a mentality of hospitality or it just wouldn't work. And I suppose folks in the service industry and in that economy in the area are naturally well i don't know if they're naturally but but they're going to be geared in toward that because they're doing it professionally right i mean yes but you know there's still a healthy number of local bumper stickers you know and there are bad jokes made about florons and floridians and you know you get all of that i mean that's just a part of our life and so you know that's obviously something i preach about um you know, because so there's resentment between the townies and the folks who are coming in for vacation. Sure, I mean there can be. I mean there's deep gratitude on the one hand, and that bleeds in. Does that bleed into the congregational life? Sure. Oh yeah. How do you address it from the pulpit? I mean, that's how do you address any issue from the pulpit. Sometimes really directly. Sometimes with humor. Um, gosh, I mean, I'm preaching through the Sermon on the Mount a few summers ago. I felt like it was in my face week after week. Um, you know, how do you love your enemies? Uh, which it could be very easy to turn people into your enemies in those situations because they're so different from you. Um, you know, we probably think slightly differently about those people from Florida with lots of money who come to church uh, um, or the people who are from Florida who don't have as much money but come to church you know so people are really good at drawing all those fine distinctions in their you know mind and in their life and so, so you kind of push on all that but yeah we've talked about it you know tons on uh, uh sunday school classes and bible studies and it's just a part of it's constantly a part of people's lives that's it i like that example that you used earlier of the the very wealthy man and the guy who grew up near the church sharing a hymnal. So even as people bring in those class resentments and suspicions and stereotypes, there you have it, right? Before God, people are connecting to one another. In reviewing your preaching and your sermons, I listened to a few, I read several, I noticed a toughness there, a, a, an almost sort of sternness at times. Uh, I was thinking in particular about a sermon that you preached, and in the introduction to it, you talked about people cycling in and out of worship attendance and cycling in and out of their own spiritual lives. Um, and you use the phrase, you know, you, people can come into church when they're in the middle of a crisis or a transition and dump their junk and then back out after their junk has been dumped until they've accumulated more via some other transition or crisis and then they show up again. Um, what's that like to stand in the pulpit and, and be that direct with people about, I mean, there you are speaking to people who are guilty of that precise sin, right? Right. Hopefully I'm speaking of it with a toughness, but then it's also a humility knowing, Hey, I do the same thing. Uh, um, 
So, yeah, I mean, are you saying is it right? Gosh, I don't know if it's right or not, but I sure find myself doing it a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I don't mean is it right necessarily. I found it admirable, and it made me think about some of my own preaching. I mean, I think these days, at least in my context, which is decisively, you know, post Christendom, we are so concerned that everyone feel comfortable, welcome, safe at home in our congregation that we really risk being confrontational. I don't think out of like political quietism or even being ashamed of the gospel, but rather just, I don't know, a sort of misguided sense of hospitality. Yeah, that's interesting. And so when I came to this church, it's kind of overwhelming reputation was that it was just an incredibly hospitable place where anybody would be welcomed in. And I I do think hey, that's the gift of this congregation. I mean, the, the dark side of that same gift is that people can just be nice. Um, and, you know, the niceness becomes the, 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 the value that rules everything. And so I've kind of almost used that hospitality to say, hey, you know you're going to be welcomed here. You know it's going to be safe. Uh, but, but, hey, when you come in, let's also be honest. Um Let's let's be that kind of more authentic, direct um, community because hey, that's what real community is about. Uh, and as hard as that is for us, you know, I feel like kind of speaking those truths from the pulpit, um, you know, and then in a bad way, probably using some self derogatory humor, um, you know, in the mix of that, you know, hopefully people are you know both feeling well welcomed and feeling challenged. If you've got the welcome as a bedrock and you can take for granted that that hospitality exists and is real, that then gives you freedom to move beyond it, right? To risk rankling people or unsettling them. Not that you're doing that personally, but but allowing the gospel to do that, not covering for it. Precisely. That's really interesting. I mean, I think sometimes we churches that pride themselves on being open places, and certainly most liberal Protestant churches these days have, have gotten the gospel of hospitality, I think we mistake that for the end of church right. when it's a step toward the end, but it, in and of itself, it's not. We just sang here at St. Paul's that, that Marty Hagen hymn, All Are Welcome Here. You know that hymn? I don't. We, we sang it yesterday, and it's a beautiful hymn, and the sentiment is right on. And I know for people who wind up in church who have been hounded out of a prior congregation for one reason or another, that that's deeply important in healing. But again, if we just stop there, our work is done because we're hospitable, right? What I got from some of your sermons is, is a reminder that Christ himself, while gracious, sometimes that grace is barbed. Sure. Yeah. So, how do you so, how do you live? How do you how are you learning to live in that? I mean, because I I think I struggle in this. And my wife would tell me, "Hey, there's sometimes you push too much." What do you What do you think the key is? Oh man, I mean, I think that what you're talking about is really a good way to do it. To to you, I mean, I try to use myself as a, I mean an exaggerated sense sometimes of my own foibles in the places where I fall down so that I'm never indicting the congregation without in, 
including myself in yep. the indictment. I think that's, yep. you know, that's conventional wisdom these days. Um, but I think, you know, this conversation is making me stop and consider the fact that I feel like we've probably begun, I've probably begun as a preacher to value uh, hospitality over um, risk in alienating people. Again, not my own personal desire to alienate people, but that way in which the gospel can be quite alienating. Um, and I like what you said, that we practice the hospitality, we get that as the bedrock of the community, and then that frees us up to not have to extend it, not, not to not have to water down the message with it like this just i'm being inarticulate here but if we take for granted that everybody is welcome then we can be more pointed but i don't know on that for me personally on that um on that line i think i probably fall into the 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 kind and loving and gentle and easy and suppress the truth to the point of being nice more often than i should and that's 15 years in i think probably early in my preaching I was a little feistier, I would guess. Yeah. And I do think we have an advantage in terms of size. I mean, you know, when we pass the piece at Arborville, I mean, it lasts seven, eight minutes, and everybody in the church is really greeted and by multiple people. And I think some of the, the smallness of that creates, um, maybe facilitates both sides of that. Um in a way that's just harder when you have more people to kind of worry about or, you know, you have to be more nuanced. Well, maybe. partially too, when you guys, yeah. And when you're practicing hospitality um, within your congregation, it's real and it's felt people are close and they know each other. I found when I was in smaller church setting, um, everything moved faster. Like the, the mood of the congregation was more readily apparent people knew each other um so a value like being welcoming was either going to be there or it wasn't there was no question right 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 smaller churches i think are more transparent places you you're the only pastor at arbordale is that right that's right right the only one i mean i have a youth director so preacher and a children's director but yeah i'm the only full-time pastor so you're preaching how often do you preach? Is it like 52 Sundays a year, 48 a year, week in, week out? Well, you know, Presbytery mandated four weeks of vacation and two weeks of study leave. You know, that my goal every year is to do 46 weeks, you know, in the pulpit. Um, and I've gotten close to that. I mean, can you tell me a little bit about 46 weeks a year? Can you tell me about what that's like on a Monday when you've done a really good job? the Sunday before and you step back in and you got to, you got to face the lectionary or the text again. And you feel like your tank is empty. Is this a phenomenon familiar to you? Oh yeah. So I, I, I guess I read some Eugene Peterson early on in my pastoral life, you know, where he compares the life of the pastor to the life of the farmer, you know, the, the, what is it? The milk, Milk cow just doesn't care if you're tired on Monday morning. You still got to go muck out the stall. Um, and so I, I think about that. I mean, I, hey, it's Monday morning. Time to translate the passage. Time to write down my initial responses. Got to get it in there. Um, it just doesn't matter. Um, you know, Richard Lisher in his book, Open Secrets, 
you know, talked about that, you know, in a really, really kind of honest way. And I think I read that early on and he uses the example of a guy riding in the train and he, he felt like the telegraph poles were coming at him like Sundays, you know, one after the other, whether you liked it or not. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a huge part of um, my life. And it's something honestly that I, I live into and I don't struggle with it on the one hand, but then on the other hand, I realize when I don't preach for a week, all the other things I get done. I feel like I'm a much better pastor pastorally on weeks when I'm not in the pulpit because I've got time to make visits and be attentive to people. My focus is more on my people than it is getting ready for the pulpit on a Sunday morning. There's a sadness there sometimes, I think. And do you find like um like thinking about your church in the big picture or, or vision or kind of long range stuff i mean that's where i really struggle is feeling like man i don't have time to step back and ask where we are and where we're going uh and what i want to be different in a year I, i've got to get a sermon ready for sunday um so that right you got to exegete that passage from luke the i, I think so too completely that um, preaching, if you love it, can become all-consuming. Um, and and it feels like, and probably is, right, the most important part of our work, certainly the most visible part. So it's easy to prioritize it over those other things. I used to find myself preaching more often than was of any interest to anybody <laughs> about the future of the church I was serving, trying to figure out that long-range visioning and, you know, trying to kill two birds with one stone in a way that probably didn't do a good job of either. I think it's hard to preach 46 Sundays a year. There's, I mean, what you're describing, you know, the discipline you've got, Monday morning, translate the passage. That's a grind. It's a grind, yeah. I mean, I have uh, I found that there are just seasons where I'm weary. Um, you know, I've been... And preaching on Matthew 11, um, you know, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden. And and I didn't get there by an accident. You know, I, I got there because I realized, man, I'm weary. Um, you know, you preach 46 weeks a year and you add a little church conflict and maybe a few really hard pastoral situations. And then you have a life, you know, and two kids. And all of a sudden you're like, man, I am weary. Uh, and I've got to find yeah. a way to do this uh, where it's not coming up out of my own strength or my own inspiration or my own creativity. So, yeah, you're nailing it. So what is that? How do you give your weariness over to Jesus? Not in your personal life so much, although that's, I'm interested in that too, but as a preacher, how do you share that? How do you turn the grind into something that's life-giving? I mean, I think for me, that is the present challenge, which is also then the present invitation of Jesus. Right? Hey, come to me. Figure out a way to do this preaching life with me. Um, and I, I would say I am dead in the center of trying to figure that out. Um, so How long have you been in the pulpit? So I've been here seven and a half years. How about in general? How many years have you been preaching? Well, I was at a large church for 
two and a half years filling an ordained position as a non-ordained person. And in that time, I probably preached, I don't know, 10 times. So that was almost like minor leagues. You know, it didn't, didn't really count almost. Uh, and so I, I tell people, hey, I've really been a preacher for seven and a half years. I've noticed in, in my interviews with folks that people who have been in the pulpit, say, for, I don't know, 20 years or more, many of them, it's not that they've gotten lazy, but their method has changed so that they're less text-based. They're doing exegesis in a different way, maybe, but they're, they're not sitting in their office trying to hammer something out for 20 hours over the course of a week. When I was maybe up until maybe right now even still that was my method my approach was to really sit down and try to produce this written document and i have noticed in my interviews that folks who have been in the pulpit for a long time are not as apt to follow that method as newer preachers has your method changed at all over the years or can you feel it changing as you as you wrestle with this question i think it's changed drastically um probably four years into preaching um signed up for the bast fellowship and preaching which is hosted by western theological seminary and one of the more fruitful parts of that whole experience was reading willeman's book undone by easter you know in classic willeman Mm. you know he said until you've preached 200 times you don't have a clue of what you're doing you know and and I and that hit me like, wow, I've preached 200 times and I'm just now starting to get a sense of what this involves. And so, you know, four years into this, I really started asking some questions about preparation, about what I was assuming about preaching. And I think at that phase, I started to shift more from teaching to preaching. Um, I started writing for the mm. ear instead of the eye. Um, and that began a slow process of moving away from uh, a manuscript, um, start memorizing my sermons. And in a small church, I mean, where you're not more than 30 yards away from anybody, that changed everything. Um, so memorizing your sermons, is that you produce a manuscript and then you're carrying the entire thing in your head? Yeah, so I by, by Thursday, I've tried to... Have outlined the sermon and write through it. I take Friday off, you know, coming back to it on, on Saturday. And the goal is to to have it in me, you know, on Sunday morning. Um, and so the manuscript goes to the woman on the third, third row who doesn't hear well. And you know, I, I stand up there and, and go for it. Wow. Do you find yourself in that delivery? Then, in your delivery, are you? Do you have like a word-for-word text-based memorization going on, or are you following an outline and speaking extemporaneously? So what I do is it's probably a combination of those things. I practice it several times word-for-word, but then I try to have what I call like a mental path, knowing like, hey, if I I 
start with this question, then I'm going to go to that answer. And from that answer, I'm going to go to Jesus in this passage and what he says. And then I know that from what he says, I'm going to go to what I often say. And then from myself to the people, from the people to this example. And then after that example follows, you know, this question and that question. And then I'm going to wrap it up with this story. So if I, I can tell that like little mental path in my head, I actually end up in the moment reproducing by memory pretty close to what I've written, even though I haven't set out to say exactly what I wrote. So do you feel freer using this method of, of having no manuscript with you up there? Uh, I do. I feel freer if I ha can, you know, retrace that path in my mind. If there's really kind of like a Sunday where, you know, maybe didn't like get it written through on Thursday and I didn't really write it till sun Saturday night, um, it's a lot harder and I, I feel constrained. I feel the anxiety of that. Um, but I mean, overall, it's just drastically changed uh, my preaching. And again, I think it's, it's even amplified its effect because of, of the size of our worship space. The, you know, the, our church just isn't that big. And like a silly example, the, the first week I left the manuscript um, in my office um, one of my good friends and his wife were sitting on the left and there was something she wanted to tell him in the middle of the sermon. And she kept trying to tell him, like hitting him with her elbow and trying to get his attention. But every time she would, I would look at them. You know, it was, it all of a sudden became this like real conversation and the dynamic of the whole preaching event uh, was changed. So, so it's it's been shocking. Because of your proximity to these folks. Yeah, my proximity and I'm not looking down, which I realized was like the moment they were all either they're like unwrapping their peppermint or whispering to their, you know, friend or like, you know, checking their text message, uh, you know, Hey, it became this kind of more engaged, more active and interactive conversation. What kind of feedback have you gotten from your congregation after making that change? Well, I mean, there's the disappointing feedback of like, wow, you did that without looking at anything. Um, and then there is a much more, I mean, helpful, like, wow, it really has changed my experience. Um, another part of this was about a year and a half ago, um, someone challenged me. This is great feedback. They said, wow, you memorize your own words, but you don't memorize scripture as if you value your words more than you do God's word. And I was like, oh, okay. So now I've started memorizing the scripture passage that I'm preaching on, um, and I think the combination of those two things for people is really powerful. I mean, I, I had one woman said, like, I actually feel like your sermon is the word for us um, because you're speaking mm. to us. Um, and, and in that, you know, like a huge part of what we long for as pastors um, that people actually feel spoken to. So it's been huge. Oh, yeah. And it's interesting. I mean... If you think about, like from a Bartian perspective, that Christ can show up in proclamation. He can be there while you're in the act of preaching with your congregation. One of the places I always kind of fall down with Bart is, I'm not sure like what we do to make that happen. We have to do something to create the space for it even though it's not dependent on our efforts. 
But I would think that if what you're doing is proclaiming the gospel to people while you stare them in the face while you're, you know, within an arm's reach of them, that that kind of intimacy and electricity is going to predispose the space more readily to a very powerful experience as opposed to the the distancing effect of a manuscript head down far away in a high up pulpit, right? Exactly. I mean, so... Just Not that the, it, it can't it happen with, with all those things. Right. And it also opens you up much more to the kind of cult of personality. Right? I mean, people can be more drawn to me uh, in a way that's not really helpful. I mean, so it's been an interesting kind of both opportunity and an interesting temptation uh, for me. You know, one of the, the questions you asked that you sent in that email was, you know, what's the role of a preaching persona and I would have said before I made this transition, well, I don't really have a preaching persona. And now this has really forced me to recognize I do have a preaching persona. Uh, and people are much more aware of that. Uh, and, and there's both a, a real... How is your persona... How is your persona different from who you are behind the scenes in your real life? I mean, I'm an introvert. I should say, hold on, it's not your real life. How is your persona different from who you are when you're not in the pulpit? Yeah, so I'm, I'm an introvert, um, and, and so I, I naturally I, I spend time by myself. Solitude is easy for me. Um, and so that kind of moment on Sunday, or even I mean, all of Sunday, you know, is requiring me to step out of that. Um, and there's a way in which that's very natural um but i think i'm, I'm a little more courageous uh and, and a little more direct um in that preaching persona than i would be i mean this is where you we started this you know you, you saying hey i had this kind of direct style i think that's part of my persona as, as a preacher whereas uh, um in conversation I, i'm much more kind of a listener um and, and even sometimes a follower. Um, silly example is right after church, we have a time with refreshments, and then we have Sunday school. And my Sunday school class is just a discussion of my sermon. And I think my persona in those two roles is very different. Um, you know, one is much more about proclamation, and the other is much more about discussion. So in your, in the pulpit, you're more direct more pointed and in person you're you're more gentle is what i hear you saying the um when you think about the feedback that you got from your parishioner that you ought to be memorizing the gospel in addition to memorizing your own words i mean that in and of itself that's interesting feedback that's somebody who sees probably the risk of cult of personality at some level right and wants to say this is an amazing thing you're doing but how about you add this to it, right? How is memorizing the lesson, I mean, you're carrying it around inside of you over the course of a week. How's that changed your own personal faith life? Has it changed my own personal faith life? Um, yeah. I do think it's really made me realize the, the superficial way in which I let Scripture deal with me. Uh I mean, most of my life, I haven't done a lot of deep meditating on Scripture. Uh, I, mean, you know, I was trained as a theologian. 
and the worst case scenario, you know, scripture becomes little bits of information that you line up in an argument. Um, and so within kind of the pastoral calling that's changed, but then within this, you know, discipline and memorizing the scripture, it is been getting deeper into me. Um, and that's been a little, little messy. Uh, you know, it's a lot messy? easier to work with the text than to have the text work on you for a whole week. Have you found your own assumptions or maybe ideology or um, beliefs changed by internalizing scripture so deeply? Well, this all started when um, a friend of mine, Trivi Johnson, who's in your neck of the woods at Hope College, came. And I was going to spend the summer preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, well, I have the Sermon on the Mount memorized. Uh, would you like me to kind of recite it as an introduction to the series? Um, and I was like, yeah, that'd be great. And, and so kind of after that, I started then memorizing each of the, the passages that I was going to preach on. And so for 20, you know, four weeks, I was memorizing the words of Jesus. And I found it deeply troubling and challenging. Um I mean, who doesn't find the Sermon on the Mount challenging? Um, you know, be perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect. Um, you know, love your enemies, go the extra mile, turn the extra cheek. All those texts, all those words, yeah, it was just incredibly uh, um, exciting on the one hand and discouraging as it revealed my brokenness on the other. And Yeah, so since that, I mean, obviously it hasn't all been that intense um but it certainly had a powerful beginning i think sometimes what we can do is we sit down this is what i do sit down with the text i have a bit of an idea of the point i want to make even before i look at what the text for the week is right i mean just be honest sure and oftentimes if i'm doing i think if i'm doing it right that'll get pushed to the side out of a deeper engagement with what the word is telling me. But oftentimes it doesn't. And I just carry my agenda in and then work the passage around the point I was trying to make already or the assumptions I've got already. I would imagine to do that memorization, you're going to, in a way, sort of push your own, it's going to push you to the side a little bit. Do you feel closer, like Jesus is closer to you because of the memorization that you're doing? Uh, that'd be nice. Uh, do I feel like Jesus is closer? <laughs> uh, no. But I, I will say that yeah. um, there have been several people um, who, who have come to church who their response to um, the scripture as, as I recited it, they said something like that. Um, like, wow, I felt like Jesus was talking to me. Or I've always said, yeah, scripture is living and breathing and sharper than a two-edged sword, but that was like that. Or, you know, and they, they use different words to kind of come at that um, sense of, yeah, that was more real. That was more, more alive. Jesus maybe was more somehow present in that. 
Well, I would imagine just performatively, there's an unfiltered aspect to it, which is going to get one back closer to the original historical moment. Um, where are you coming from theologically? You're in, your church is a PCUSA congregation, is that right? It is. You know, we're in the mountains of Western North Carolina, so we're very isolated. Uh, um, and there's a good part of that and a bad part of that. I mean, theologically, it means... Um, there's not a real deep sense of, of connection to the wider church. You know, as a pastor, I do live in that larger framework. Um, my place in that is a little strange. I mean, I grew up in a liberal sweet spot. I'm in an America's Georgia, you know, the home of Habitat for Humanity, Jimmy Carter land. Uh, um, but then I went and did a master's in New Testament outside of that tradition, uh, at Regent College in Vancouver, and then did a PhD in the University of Scotland, University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And so I'm a bit of an outsider. I mean, I kind of consider myself an evangelical Catholic, but evangelical in that like more European sense of the world, not necessarily like personal conversion, inerrancy of scripture sense. So do you feel, though, like your I'm making some assumptions here, but from reading your sermons, you're, you're Christocentric. Um, is that in keeping with the broader religious culture in Banner Elk, or does that feel following on the heels of some liberal Protestant predecessors who were in your pulpit? Is that jarring for your congregation? I, th- I think it's jarring because, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of, of what p- people came accustomed to here was... Yeah, just liberal notions of goodness, you know, and some people in the congregation fully accepted that. And, you know, other people stuck with their conservative morality. And so when you bring Jesus and try to put him in the center of that, I constantly find myself pushing on, you know, notions of what people think it means to be good and religious and faithful, whether that's on the right or the left. Uh, um, And so, yeah, I, I think I'm constantly aware of this. And if you were to listen to probably more of my sermons, you would hear this, where I come to these moments of, you know, they can sound like simplistic contrast, but I will often find myself saying things like, so Christians on the right believe, you know, that it's just a matter of being good in this area, and Christians on the left matter you know, being good in this area, but Jesus wants you to transcend that, or Jesus wants you to cut down the middle of that, or, I mean, that's a pretty common, you know, homiletic move I make, you know, and I'm thinking very explicitly of, people in my congregation um because in a small place who are carrying one set of those assumptions or another can you tell me a little bit t about your call to ministry the question that i wonder and i've been asking of folks and of myself is whether oftentimes when i hear people talk about their call story there's a sort of I think a desire to make the whole thing a little rosier than it actually might be. And I've been thinking about how we, many of us wind up in ministry, not out of our own great gifts, not out of a bolt out of the clear blue sky, of course, either, or even out of a sort of gradual awakening and realization of that Frederick Buechner idea that, you know, I have these gifts and the world has these needs and suddenly there they are interlocking. But rather, we wind up in the pulpit out of pain and, and, and searching and 
brokenness. So for my own, in my own story, my father was a preacher. He died when I was 14 and we were at each other's throats in an adolescent way, um, metaphorically. And then he was gone and I found myself like needing to please him in a way that I hadn't been able to do or wasn't willing to do when he was alive. So the easiest way to do that was, of course, to, to follow in his vocational footsteps. And I have no doubt if my dad had been a doctor, maybe I would have, you know, I would have wound up being a doctor. I was going to do whatever I thought he wanted me to do posthumously. So I wind up answering or pursuing a call to ministry really directly out of my grief. Um, and I wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, I wouldn't be doing any other thing. But it's not some clean and neat, beautiful story for me. So what I'm wondering is if if that might not be so unusual, if we are called to ministry in ways that are difficult. So can you tell, assuming all of that, what I just said, um, the question I want to ask is this. Do you think that one's call, your call, do you think that your call came cleanly or sideways or in ways that a secular psychotherapist might describe that look quite different from whatever you told your ordination board? Well, my call story starts with disappointment. Uh, I got a master's in New Testament, a PhD in theology. You don't do that to go preach in a rural pulpit. Um, and part of the way God called me was the disappointment of, you know, going on the academic market and not getting a job. Uh, and that coinciding with kind of the insistence with two of the people that I was studying with that I was already a pastor. Um, I, had, I had two guys who were, who had served in a church, Church, who were you know pursuing doctoral studies, you know, who kept looking at me and going, "It's not a question of if you're a pastor; you already are a pastor." Uh, and me going, "No, no, no! I'm a teacher. You know, I want to be a teacher." Uh, and then finally, you know, through the disappointment uh, of kind of recognizing both in the degree process and then in going onto the market that I just wasn't that gifted academically. Um, so, sure. I mean, it, it, in part, it is a story of disappointment. And then, you know, out of that, finding a, a deep joy of, no, I really was, you know, created for this and, and called into it. And um, the best of who I am is being offered up in it. But the beginning didn't feel that way. Um, Did it feel initially like you were settling for it? Initially? It did, and I think that was part of the gift of doing this two and a half years in Baton Rouge as a non-ordained person in an ordained position. Um, I was able to really kind of feel and feel my way into the pastoral calling. Um, I guess I was wooed into it. I, I don't, I don't, you know, there'd be a lot of ways of describing that. Um, and part of that came uh, honestly through. Uh, discovering the intellectual rigor required of being a pastor. I mean, you know, you sit down with young adults or people who are in their 80s, they're asking you questions that you've never considered. Um, it's riskier than the classroom in some way. Um, 
And so I think I, I kind of did come into it sideways through disappointment only to discover that this was precisely where I was going to learn to to hear the gospel and think through the gospel and learn to speak the gospel in a way that wouldn't have happened in a academic setting or had my dreams come true. Isn't that remarkable, though, that you found, if I'm hearing you properly, that those very things that you were hoping to get out of academia came to you or are coming to you in a pastoral setting. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's a gift. I love it. Um, and it, it supports my, it supports my, you know, not, <laughs> it's not the deepest thought in the world, but I sat for years on the, what we call the, the church and ministry committee in the UCC, which is like a sort of corporate bishop that, that, both polices pastors when they get in trouble and screens people who are pursuing ordination. And I got tired. I felt like there was like a desire. People felt like they needed to narrate their call story as one of unadulterated joy. Um, And I think in real life, that's, I mean, that happens, but it doesn't happen all that often. I mean, if, if crucified, Fiction and resurrection shapes the Christian life. Why shouldn't your call experience be conformed to that? That's beautiful. Amen. T, this has been a terrific conversation. I'm very grateful to you for the time you took and for um, for hanging out and talking to me. It was a pleasure. Many thanks for listening to the Christian Centuries Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Steve Thorngate.